0: Um, the gathering. So Josh sent me a great talk from a podcast Um, I know several of you have devoured. The podcast is called The Cultural Moment. It's by a guy named uh, John Marcoma from Portland, who used to be a pastor there. And Mark Sayers, who still is, I think, a pastor in Melbourne. And uh, they talk about what's going on in the Western world at this time. And the uh, specific um, episode was entitled... True individuality is found in dying to self. And uh, whenever someone sends you something, and I get sent things to listen to and read frequently, it's always quite humbling and uh, uh, causes you to feel insecure. Uh, Why did this person feel like I should read this or watch this or listen to this? Um, And Josh felt that it would be good for me to listen to. True individuality is found in dying to self. (laughs) Thank you, Josh. But um, central to the talk was an analogy that was helpful to today's value. And I just want to set it up as kind of a lens to look through the content of today. Um, Mark says, says there's these three reservoirs a person needs for life to flourish. So if the goal of humanity, or, or the goal is to, to let hu- see human life flourish, and that is the goal, God is restoring all things, uh, then there's these three reservoirs that we need. Um, and you can put it up, Joel, they, they are freedom, community, and meaning. So everyone needs these three things in order for life to flourish. And Mark explains how for most people like us living in Western society, our freedom tank is overflowing. I couldn't find one overflowing, but he says it's, it's pouring over the freedom one in the West. He says the community tank is, is very, very little in it, and the meaning tank is absolutely empty. Um, and so the major problem is here, what he says in our society and for us as individuals, is that because uh, these other true the meaning tanks and the community tanks, are primarily empty, we use our freedom tank to try to find meaning and community. And so our freedom tank, we drink from our freedom tank all the time to direct our lives. Um, and so uh, how do we find happiness? Use your freedom. How do you find meaning in community? Use your freedom. Uh, How do you participate? Use your freedom. What should you sacrifice? You decide. Use your freedom. Um, And so he says, all the time, this is a a problem that all the time we're using freedom to try and find uh, a flourishing life. So Ralph Waldo Emerson, the American essayist, wrote that for a person to truly discover themselves, to truly discover this flourishing life, they needed to follow their own conscience, which up to that point sounds quite Christian. I I hear people within our church and other Christians in Western society say this all the time. And the the Bible talks about conscience too. But Ralph uh, says, follow your own conscience and what that means is, do your own thing. That's his words. His essay is called, guess what it's called? You won't guess, I'll just tell you. Unless you know it. It's not called freedom. That's the obvious one. I did notice that it's dangerous to have Julian up here with the mic. You like that thing. (laughs) You usurp Josh's authority very quickly, <laughs> um, but you're also good on it. Anyway, it's co- the, the essay is called Self-Reliance. It's one of his most famous essays, Self-Reliance. Do your own thing. In other words, the tank that uh, Emerson says we need to pursue is that uh, everyone should drink from freedom. So no one's saying well, we shouldn't have freedom. Mark and John Mark suggest that we need less freedom. We need more meaning and more community. They say true individuality is found in dying to self. So this reminds us a little bit of what Jesus said. Whoever whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So contrary to popular Western belief, human flourishing is not found in the relentless pursuits of happiness but in dying to self in Jesus, to discover in Jesus a new life in his kingdom of God that in, includes freedom in Christ to sacrifice, to lay down our lives, to pursue his will. It's completely countercultural. In other words, Jesus doesn't uh, take away our freedom in order to help our lives flourish, he gives us greater freedom than Western society can even give. And then he says, now use your freedom to live for me, to follow me, to walk with me, to sacrifice, to lay down your life. And as you lay down your life in me, you'll find your human flourishing. You'll find yourself. But as long as we kind of drink from the tank of uh, freedom Western society teaches us, as long as we disciple each other in that, do what's right for you, we will ongoingly um, do damage to ourselves and to those around us. So Paul writes to those in Colossians, fix your eyes on things that are above. So kind of look beyond ourselves to what God is doing, what God is calling us to, what God has for us, and then reverse engineer that into my life now. How do I live now in light of that? Um, So I want you just to wear those lenses if you can. I don't know how well you can remember those things, but if you just can wear the lenses of freedom, community, and meaning, we need all three of those things. They're all good things, but we need them at appropriate levels. We need to drink from all of them. Okay, so a question for you as we get into it is, does an oversaturation of freedom influence your view of the church or get in the way of you flourishing? Don't answer the question. um... So I think this morning we are talking about gathering. I I really do think that I I could talk about this all year. It's such a huge subject. We have 2,000 years of history, plus then the Israelites. Um, And I've thought a lot about different ways I'd love to. I I, I wanted to um, unpack liturgy and draw on James K. Smith that shows clearly through Scripture and history, the history of the church how our hearts are shaped uh, by our habits and how it's important not just that we show up, but the things that we do together in our times together, how they shape our hearts, how we disciple each other through worship and the Word and through encouragement and through communion and through prayers. and We disciple our hearts to love the things that God loves. Um, I'd love to discuss the theology of gathering And the thread that runs throughout Scripture, even to today, that we're not this like new idea. Uh, It wasn't like you could be interviewed and say, when did we come up with the idea of this? It's It's so clever. No, we're just another thread in the long history of what the Holy Spirit's been doing as Jesus builds His church. And the thread will continue beyond us. I'd love to discuss how the church puts the kingdom of God on display for all to see. How it's through the church that the world sees that there is a king. That he does have a kingdom and he is expressing his authority through changed lives. But this morning, what I'm going to do is show you three wonderful aspects of the church gathered. I'm, and I've given them bad names, but they're names I can remember. Number one is the lift. Number two is the flame. And number three is the fight. The threefold cord is not quickly broken. This is Ecclesiastes 4, 9, 12. This text is looking at life as a journey. And it's recognizing that along this journey, there's these three dangers that will pop up in life. And uh, there's a, this is um, a metaphor of spiritual journeys as well. That as we journey with Jesus, as we walk with Him, There's these experiences that just will pop up in life. And the three are falls, hardships, and foes. Number one then, the lift. Do you know that Christians fall? Do you know that Christians sin? Yeah. Nass lives with me. I don't know why it's a surprise to you. I give you enough evidence. Is that a surprise to you, that Christians fall? Can you, can you answer that? Not rhetorically. Is that a surprise to anyone? No. no? It shouldn't be. And yet, how often do we talk about our falling? By the evidence of everyone's response, we all know it happens. But when's the last time you went to someone and said, hey man, I'm really struggling with this, could you please pray with me? Now for some of you, that's very recently, especially when you started a spiritual friendship and you're pursuing that. But for some of you, the reason we don't is we, we feel like we have to hide things in the shadows. Um, but when the gospel, which was last week's value that we spoke about and it's our first value, when, they, when the gospel shapes our cultures, we experience this culture of honesty. We, we kind of are free to uh, share with each other what we're going through. The gospel shows us that we're more sinful than we think but that we're far more loved than we can imagine. The reason I don't want to show you my sin is because I'm not sure I'll be accepted. But the gospel shows me I am accepted by the one who knows my sin better than I do, who knows it deeper than I do, and I'm the one discovering my sins. He already knows them. And he already accepts and loves me. Therefore, I'm free to go, Oh, I see, God, I am so prideful. But you knew that when you sent Jesus to die for me. Thank you. Please forgive me. Change me. Work on me. It's not a surprise to him. And so as we walk with our brothers and sisters, we go, hey Josh, uh, God knows this about me, but I think it's helpful if you know this about me too. I'm struggling with pride. Could you please pray with me? As opposed to kind of guilt and shame and heaviness. Uh, the writer of Hebrews says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness weaknesses. Sorry, we have multiple ones but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. You see there what kinds of weaknesses he's talking about. These aren't, what are you good at, what are you bad at? These are sin weaknesses. These are uh, ways in which we struggle to walk with God and walk in His will. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence. How different to what we feel we need to do. Let us therefore hide. Let us therefore withdraw. Let us therefore not tell anyone. No, let us therefore approach the throne of grace, not shyly, not heavily, not with our heads bowed down, with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. In other words, the only reason we can run to the throne of grace with confidence is because we know that Christ who's on there, He's accepted us, He's loved us, He already knows what we're bringing, and He cannot wait, and we know it, to lift up off that burden and shame and to put on forgiveness and redemption. So according to Jesus, we are all sorts of sinful. We are murderers, liars, jealous, adulterers, And if you're none of those, you're worse. You're prideful. Like me. None of us in this room escape Jesus' kind of piercing of the heart. All of us need to know how to run into the, the throne of grace. And the reason we don't is because pride still sits on us. So the Holy Spirit is working on us to be more like Jesus, but there isn't a person in this room who's made it that far. We're still on our journey of becoming Christ-like. We're still getting things worked out of us. Sin's been uprooted and the fruit of the Spirit being uh, grown in us. Even currently. I mean, this is a, we're, we live in difficult times. And in these difficult times, if you're like me, then you might be t- tempted. Or actually, if you're like me, you might be lacking patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control and may be tempted to uh, fall into pits of anger and self-righteousness and pride. Yet through faith in Jesus, we are free to admit that we have stumbled and fallen. And this text tells us that a healthy Christian is in one of two positions. They're either in the pit calling out for help, that's healthy, or they're out the pit reaching in and lifting them out. But they're walking together. It's one of the benefits of the gathering is we walk together to help each other out of pits or to be helped out of pits, to be reconciled, restored, and redeemed. So the healthy Christian is not the one who sees no need to run to the throne of grace, but the one who sees their need and runs to the throne of grace. And we run there together. We help each other along. So one wonderful aspect of our gathering is how we join Jesus in bringing people to the throne of grace, how we walk there together. James writes, a pathway we spoke about during spiritual friendship, James writes, uh, Confess your sins, one to each other, and pray for each other, so you may be healed. Here's a way that we can run to the throne of grace together. Confess your sins to each other, pray for each other. You You can't heal each other. You're not the one sitting on the throne. Just pray with each other to the one who's sitting on the throne and let Him do His work in our lives. So in the church, we all have a ministry of lifting each other up through these many small restorations, redemptions, and reconciliations. And it reflects to each other the work that Jesus has done and is doing and will do in our lives. So in a way, we keep um, imbibing and enacting the gospel in each other's lives, you know, uh, beware, be, be cautious. I, I don't know if you're like me, it's very easy to imbibe and enact the law over each other's lives. You know? let, rem- let me remind you of what the law says, you evil sinner, you worthless human. How many times have you backslid? How many times have you lied to God? How many times have you let Him down? How useless a Christian you are. We wouldn't say things like that, but that may be the tone of what comes across in our uh, people's experience of us. But we, the church is called to imbibe and enact the gospel to one another. Redemption, reconciliation, re- reconciliation, restoration. We lift each other up. That's the lift. We help each other stay free in Jesus. No guilt, no shame. Put on His grace. Turn from your sin. Come to Him. If that's you today, I'm not going to give you an opportunity now, but when we have communion, take that opportunity to go to a brother or sister and say, will you run with me to the throne of grace? Can we pray together? Can you pray with me that the Holy Spirit would help me turn from my sin and I would run in the freedom and grace that He's given me? And then you say back to them, absolutely. There's nothing you could be struggling with that's a shock or surprise. He knows. That's right. The flame. The passage imagines cold nights on this long journey. Um, And it says you wouldn't want to, you basically wouldn't want to be pursuing your freedom on cold nights. You know, it's all fine and dandy until the evening sets in and you get freezing and cold and you you realize it's not great to walk alone. Um, And it imagines, you know, what would be much better is companionship, spiritual companionship, walking with others. And there's something, there's an ability to stay warm through <laughs> the cold nights together that we can't do alone. And uh, many saints in history, and I'm not going to quote now, um, but have had different ways of saying Christianity can't be done alone. There's no form of Christianity that's done in isolation uh, or independently of others. And um, it's something that we do together. That's how it works. Do you know that Christians experience hardships? You know that, just because of life, not because of not because of sin necessarily. I mean, discipline, God's discipline of them may, may be a hardship. But do you know that just in life, Christians experience hardships? I know, like. You may, you may have spent time in a church where it, it talks about health, wealth and prosperity and so any hardship you feel guilty that you must be doing something wrong or you're not giving enough or something. because what God really wants is for your life to be sweet. The Christians experience hardships and the, te- the Bible actually teaches us that through our sufferings we experience God in a much deeper and profound way. And the Bible promises us that we will join in the sufferings of Christ, that the road of the, the, uh, the, road of the gospel, or the road of the cross, as we follow Him, Uh, we too will experience some of what He experienced. Not for the salvation of ourselves, but because it's the way in which He works. It's His path. So we experience hardships. Many various forms of them. Christians experience setbacks and sickness and sadness. We... As a, as a church, as, as members of Christ's body together, uh, we are vessels of compassion and love to one another. It's part of our ministry to each other. Paul wrote scathingly to the Corinthians. You know Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13 we, is, the, is the great chapter on love. You know that, right? Like, love is this, love is that, love is... And most often we hear it at weddings, right? By, by the, and it sounds so beautiful. Bride... Handsome groom. They're both crying. Love is patient. Love is kind. Do you promise? Yes, we do. That's not the tone of Paul's letter in 1 Corinthians. Paul is writing a scathing letter and he's going, Do you not get it? Can you not understand? Love is patient and you are not. Love is kind and you are not kind. Love is gentle and there is no gentleness with you, between each other. He's, he's rebuking them. He, he's not writing a lovely poem to them. That's not the one I want to talk about. But just after that, Paul says... Now, Paul's tone may have not been as I just communicated it. I'm not 100% sure how Paul's tone would have been. Maybe less intense, but, but certainly having a lot of biblical authority to reproof them. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, he says, earnestly desire love. He's just diagnosed that they have no love for each other. now he says, you need to earnestly desire love. That's what I want you to do. And then he says in a few verses later, since you are eager for the manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. If you want to look like a church that is Spirit-filled and keeping in step with the Spirit, and you do in Corinthians, you you want these gifts, and you want to, uh, in that sense, be charismatic and lean into that, fantastic. Then strive, be eager, uh, pursue the ones that will build up the church, that will edify one another. What do your brothers and sisters need? Pray that the Holy Spirit would gift you in order to be able to build them up. This word there, strive, Um, it's better better understood as getting to the bottom of the matter. It's not not a word about kind of this relentless pursuit. The the word there in the Greek is about you're kind of seeking a way. You're digging up. You're trying to find how you can uh, build others up. So Jesus didn't stop. If you think about it, Jesus didn't stop on His work Until he got to the bottom of the matter. And his searching led him all the way to the grave. But he was lovingly intent on building his church. That's what it took. As he walked with the Spirit, as Jesus was charismatic, as he led into the Spirit, gifting him and uh, using him, it led him to the grave so that we could be built up and edified through him. So when we truly partner with the Holy Spirit, and not the reservoir of freedom, we are encouraged to desire to love one another and to experience the gifts of the Spirit flowing through us that build others up. And there's this very odd thing in the church that actually, as the Holy Spirit uses me and gifts me to edify and build you up, I'm more blessed by your building up than I am by anything I could have for myself. In other words... Uh, Blessing you blesses me. I I have this little little date coming next month. I I couldn't be more excited about it. Let me tell you why. There's there's three people I just cannot wait to bless. It's like a trinitarian blessing happening. One of them is going to be my wife, and on that night we would have been together for twenty years, not married but announcing that we have feelings for each other. (laughs) 20 years ago, we said, not love or like, but you know, (laughs) as young teenagers speak. She was a young teenager. I was a 20-year-old. Inappropriate, hey? God works in mysterious ways. Another person absolutely loves pizza. I'm not going to tell you who that. No, I will tell you who they are because then you can bless them with pizza. It's Jib. There's not a human being I know in the world who loves pizza more than Jib. Not even the Ninja Turtles. <laughs> Jib, for years when he was single, made got little like um, pita like pita breads, but not not always the thick ones. So sometimes they were just what? What's thinner than a pita bread? A quesadilla, a tortilla, yeah. tortilla, whatever, a wrap a wrap, a pita bread, whatever could be a base and put a couple of ingredients on top like ham and pineapple or something and that would be his dinner for years. Every now and then he'd throw up a spag bowl. He loves it. If you talk to him about pizza, he smiles as if it's his third child. Do you know where he's never been? I'll tell you in a moment. Another friend of mine, his love language is experiences. He just loves experiences. And there's a place I know he loves. And so on this night, they've all agreed to allow me to buy them Monsterella pizza. My wife will be there 20 years later and we'll share a pizza in a little corner by ourselves but at the same table will be (laughs) Jib, who's forgotten that any of us are there as he looks at this beautiful pizza and eats it, because he's never had mozzarella. And then this other friend who loves experiences, he loves mozzarella. And to me, I could not be more excited about a night coming up than that one, because there's three people I know are going to have their socks blessed off, and that blesses me. Couldn't be happier. That's what church feels like. That's what blessing each other feels like. When I see the joy that God is working in your life, when I see the way you are taken care of, when I see the way that you are edified or blessed or built up, oh, that does something to me. Thanks for letting me share uh, a memory I'm looking forward to. But I hope it illustrates the way that Blessing others becomes a blessing to ourselves. And that's how the Holy Spirit works. Paul says to the Corinthians, your meetings do more harm than good. Gee. He doesn't tell them to stop meeting. He just diagnoses them. You you need to keep meeting, but your meetings are doing more harm than good. You need to change things. You, You really need to let God get to work in your hearts. I sat and thought about this. I've thought about this verse for years and years. Can you imagine a church of people who believe in the grace and mercy of God like you do, revealed through the literal death of Jesus, having such poor attitudes towards each other that an apostle would say to them, your meetings do more harm than good. (laughs) Ouch. And yet... In these times, in these in these difficult times, it's no longer impossible to imagine doing each other harm. But we're called to do each other good. So let this not be us. Paul's warning to the Corinthians, let that not be us. Another wonderful aspect of our gathering is that we love one another like Jesus. We seek to edify one another through the Holy Spirit. This is an an expression of biblical companionship. This is how we can keep each other warm. The flames of our hearts for Jesus as we follow Him. We walk together. We love each other and we're compassionate towards one another. The fight. Number three, the fight. The fight is not inside. It's not a civil war. It's outside. This passage imagines that there may be a thief or outlaw or even murderer along the journey. This is very different. As you're walking in companionship with the church, you may step on each other's toes. And you may go, ouch, you hurt me. I'm sorry, will you forgive me? Yes, I will. Uh, No, it's not in your heart to do that. Okay, thanks. Let's keep walking together. We may need a bit of that. Matthew 5, Matthew 18. A bit of those types of conversations. But this isn't talking about that. This says, as you're walking along the road, there's going to be opposition. There's going to be marauders, maybe murderers, thieves, and robbers. Jesus says, Satan comes to rob, kill, and destroy, but I come to give life. As you walk together along this road, the spiritual journey, you're going to find an enemy. The enemy is going to find you. The first church says, interestingly, after Peter preached and 3,000 people got saved, it says, very interestingly... Um, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. So those who were rescued from the danger of sin and death were being placed into communities for their safety and security. They weren't left alone. because being rescued forever, you belong to Christ, but there's still the spiritual battle. Put into the ranks, you're part of this family. Let's go fight together. Do you know that Christians are in a spiritual battle? It's hard to, sometimes it's hard to remember that in our Western society and in Australia, that's quite, we're quite Gnostic in our society. And sometimes it's hard to remember that there's spiritual battle. Sometimes it sounds weird to remind ourselves that there's evil and good, that there's demons and angels. And it's like, you know, it starts like, Whoa, I haven't thought about this stuff for so long. If you go to other parts of the world, it's not strange at all. It's right in front of their face every day. They know that they're against the spirits are clear to them. Evil and good is obvious to them. There's no doubt to them. To the majority world, but over here it's far more subtle. So Paul speaks to the church in Ephesus. Uh, Those Christians they've been saved. They've been added to the church. They've been put into a body. They have leadership. Um, and he tells them that they're in a spiritual battle against spiritual powers and rulers. And he says, um, the spiritual journey, it's not going to be a simple one. Rest assured, victory's already been had. Don't worry about it. Jesus is victorious. But you're going to have a spiritual battle. There's a whole armor that you can put on. Michael Eaton uh, writes about spiritual battles and this idea of walking together along the journey. He says, in this realm, this this realm of spiritual warfare and walking together, spiritual progress is measured by growing interdependence. Spiritual progress is measured by growing interdependence. Jerry Bridges, a wonderful Christian man who's no longer alive today, discipled thousands and thousands of people. He said when he was 82... He said, I see now my total dependence on the saints, the community, and I see now I've always been dependent on God in community. In other words, I see now at 82 that I can't do this Christian thing alone, but also at 82 I look back and go, and looking back on my life, I could never do it alone, I just didn't know it yet. But now at 82 I can, I can see it. Forget who says it, said it. I wish I could quote them because it's a good quote. But they said, If you lived for a thousand years, you would never outgrow your dependency on others in the Christian journey. You would never become so Christ-like that you no longer needed others. You'd never be so sanctified that you were no longer interdependent on the body of Christ. Not until we go to be with Christ Himself Will we not literally and and physically, visibly, emotionally, spiritually need this? Spiritual progress is measured by growing interdependence. Are you more aware of your need for your brothers and sisters today than you were when you were a younger Christian? So we're in a spiritual battle. Let's not fight each other. Let's fight against the principalities and powers. I would hate... I don't, I don't really know how to talk about demons and things. And I don't really want to. But I would hate it if there was some kind of demon in Perth and, and, they, were, and they were charged to, to uh, come up with schemes against the church. And as the demon looks, makes some sort of analysis, goes, reports back, kind of in the screw tape letters way, reports back and goes, no, leave them alone. They're kind of hurting each other themselves. We don't need to do anything. They're not expressing the love of Christ. They don't have patience. They don't have kindness. There's no abundant expression of grace. They're each doing their own thing. They're drinking from the pool of freedom. Leave them. If we do something, they may notice. Let's just watch. I, I, I would hate that. Wouldn't you hate that? Our enemy enjoying what's going on? We fight alongside each other. We fight for each other. So three wonderful aspects of the gathering and I'm closing. So we lift each other up when we fall, and we will fall. One of the things that broke my heart when uh, Ravi Zacharias died and it came out that he had lived an incredibly immoral life that, that can't be explained. It's just dreadful. was hearing a group of pastors say, I wonder if he was even saved. You know why my heart broke? Because it made me feel unsafe. It made me think, what grace do we really have for each other? Is there a line at which you cross that you're no longer a Christian? Is there any place from which you can't run back to the throne of grace? If you die before you do, does that leave you out? We can't make each other feel that way. We must make each other feel like there is no line too far away to run back to the throne of grace. There is no distance too far. There is no time too late unless you're dead and you can't do it. Then we'll figure out what the (laughs) Lord of all does. But if you have breath in your lungs, run to the throne of grace. We lift each other up when we fall. We encourage Number two, we encourage each other's faith through the love of Jesus and the gifts of the Spirit. That gets exercised here in this community. We fight for each other. Number three. You have spiritual war battles. I have spiritual battles. The elders have spiritual battles. The church has spiritual battles. Christians in Perth have spiritual battles. We fight together. Luke wrote that they were at at the beginning this first group of believers. He said he he he, uh, Luke was writing about them, and he said they uh, were devoted believers. They were devoted. They were devoted to the apostles' word, to the, to the preaching. They were devoted to Christ-centeredness through uh, communion. They were devoted to deep fellowship with each other. They were devoted to dependence on God through the prayers. But they were devoted. Not that pastors were devoted or the deacons were devoted or the community groups' leaders were devoted or Joel and Jonah were devoted. They were devoted. The church was devoted. But then just a, a generation or so later... The writer of Hebrews says, Let us not neglect to meet together, as some have made a habit, but encouraging one another all the more as the day is approaching. In other words, hey man, this isn't a law, but don't drink only from the pool of freedom. Don't neglect to this, as some have made a habit, their lives are being formed by something else, somewhere else, in something else. Find yourselves in this, in community, in meaning, and not just freedom. Encourage one another, and all the more as the day is approaching. That's that end in sight. We, we, we're going somewhere, we're waiting for something. Let me read to you a poem. In our value, when we put it out in a booklet, it will say this under Grace, uh, under Gathering, and it will say this uh, probably on the website as we uh, go about putting stuff up. It says, God has given all His children resources so that they can participate in encouraging the church. God has made it that when we serve one another, we ourselves are even more blessed. As members of the church serve one another, they make the church healthy and effective. Let me read to you this poem, and Josh will take us to communion. Sorry, it's not a poem, it's a hymn. Some of you know. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is His new creation by water and the Word. From heaven He came and sought her to be His holy bride. With His own blood He bought her, and for her life He died. Elect from every nation, yet one over all the earth. Her charter of salvation, one Lord, one faith, one birth. One holy name she blesses, partakes one holy food and to one hope she presses with every grace endued. Though with a scornful wonder men see her sore oppressed, by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed, yet saints their watch are keeping, their cry goes up, How long? And soon the night of weeping shall be the morn of song. The church shall never perish, her dear Lord to defend, to guide, sustain, and cherish, is with her to the end. Though there be those that hate her and false sons in her pale, against a foe or traitor, she ever shall prevail. Mid toil and tribulation and tumult of her war, she waits the consummation of peace forevermore. Till so with the vision glorious, her longing eyes are blessed. The great church victorious shall be the church at rest. Yet she on earth hath union with God, the three in one, a mystic, sweet communion with those whose rest is one. O happy ones and holy, Lord, give us grace that we, like them, the meek and lowly, on high may dwell with thee. Amen.